Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I mean, there is a name for an organization that pays below a living wage but uses motivational techniques to keep you engaged and and excited about being part of it, and that is a cult. (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah, that's, you know... I can't say that's like the language that our industry uses, but I don't disagree with it. <laughs> hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my long-last co-host, Rodney Evans. I'm back. Hello, everybody. It's been about six days since we saw each other. We are also joined today by David Buckmaster, the director of global retail compensation at Nike and the author of the new book, Fair Pay, How to Get a Raise, Close the Wage Gap and Build Stronger Businesses. David, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. On today's episode, we're going to talk about pay, compensation, moolah. But before we unpack that and get into our wallets, let's get into our heads for the chat do it. We are not going to ask everyone here to talk about how much they make, though we did bandy that about <laughs> as an idea. So our check-in for today is going to be, if you had to teach a class on one thing, what would it be? Aaron, and you go first. it can't be what I do for a living, right? It's got to be, be whatever you outside want. of the... Be whatever you well, want. Right. It feels boring to say what I do. Well, then so say something better. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's go Aaron, then David, and then I will go last. I've been so excited about it lately. I think I would teach an exercise class all in Oculus. Mm. So we'd all be dorking out in the room together and it would be like, yeah, Oculus exercise class. Hell yeah. I will go to that. I mean, let's do it. All right. David? I might go to that too, but I don't know if I need a Facebook account again for that. Is that, <laughs> is that how that would work? <laughs> I think they force that. Unfortunately, yeah. yes. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Do, do people need instructors on mediocre guitar playing because if so you know i'd be right in there right that's about all i do (laughs) outside of my day job right so maybe that mediocre guitar is a skill that a lot of people aspire to right right so i yeah that'll be my niche like narrow target market right you can do nothing but you only aspire to get mediocre that's campfire campfire guitar lessons it's just We just play Wonderwall over and over again. That's all it is, right? It's just, it's, you, you learn four chords and that's it. Yeah. Perfect. Rodney, what are you going to teach? Up? I am going to teach also at a fairly JV level, but intro to design, like interior design. Mm. Not because I think I am an amazing interior designer, but because I think as a result of being a practicing non-trained, not professional designer. I am good at doing it and explaining to other people who have no particular talent or skill or training how to do it. In the layman's terms. In the, la- in the layman's terms, it's like if you have an empty house and you don't know where to begin, I could help you get to something <laughs> you would probably like. I like that both of your answers were like, I'm going to take you from terrible to neutral. That's right. (laughs) Sometimes you don't need an expert. Sometimes you need someone who remembers the foundational FG and C chords. That's right. Brilliant. See, you're you're too advanced already, Rodney. (laughs) I I can no longer be your teacher. (laughs) You've graduated. I've graduated past David. That's awesome. So today's topic is going to be about pay. And I guess we wanted to start by asking you, David, what do you actually do? You're at a party. Someone says, hey, David, what do you do? How do you answer that? This is always such a fun question because people don't know we exist in big companies. And so (laughs) there's this like natural script that plays out every time I get asked this question. It's like, so what do you do? And I say, well, you know, I have this niche job and my job is just let me figure out how much money everybody should be making. 
And then naturally, what you get, it's like, oh, I bet people are really nice to you. And mm. then, you know, <laughs> you, you, you know what I say is my, my like dumb dad joke is like, yeah, you'd think. But, you know, there's like this ambient temperature of people just being mad at you all the time because right. everybody wants to get paid more at all times. So, like, you know, I'll try to read the room a little bit, like occasionally if I sense that I'm about to get into a hostile conversation about it, like I might take the same approach that Americans take when they travel abroad and they just say they, you know, are Canadian or something. And like, yeah, I work in HR, I work in benefits or something, you know, or somebody, you know, will graciously think we work in payroll and we just do the administrative Perfect. stuff and they, and they no longer have follow-up questions, which is awesome. But uh, no, we sit upstream. We're like kind of tucked away into a dark corner of the HR department. But yeah, so our job is to figure out that entire package of stuff that you get in exchange for your work. So pay and benefits, but also things like recognition, maybe some career development, your work-life balance, like how it all fits together. I mean, it doesn't sound like that is an inherently evil job. It doesn't sound like it's necessarily populated with people like twirling their mustaches and conspiring to mess with people's livelihoods. So you talk about this field as being one that's neglected. Why? Why is that? Yeah, I mean, to be fair, if I could grow a proper mustache, I would probably twirl <laughs> it, you know? Because it's fun. Just at that yeah, dinner right. party, when You're somebody right, right, asks right. you, I, start with the mustache twirl, then explain. Exactly, yeah. exactly. You know, I live in Portland, so it'd probably be really well received also <laughs> if I had a good uh, twirling mustache. But If you waxed you know, it. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, like what I say is, uh, you know, problems with pay are mostly not about design, but about inertia. You know, if you think about pay from the company side, and I'm, I'm here representing my book, not any particular company's set of practices or anything. But if this is like, in, if you think of any other program at a company, like you just start to see some sort of fundamental differences between that and pay. Like if you're running a leadership development program or performance ranking system, or even like a marketing campaign, those things all have on and off switches. Like you can mm-hmm. fully replace a bad or a dated program or mistake. You can just say, hey, as of October 1, let's use this form instead of that form. And like, that's the end of that old story, mm-hmm. right? Pay is a bit different in the sense that like pay kind of functions as anti-gravity in the sense that what only what goes up can only be expected to go up, you know, like you can't, like if you've made a mistake, you're kind of stuck with it for a long time. So like the residue of a bad pay program or like someone's bad experience is going to stick with them for a very long time, right? The the hard part about pay or one of the hard parts is that, you know, your business just changes all the time in the sense that you've got new leaders coming in, they've got different perspectives on how it should work. The company reorganizes every six months for some, you know, flighty, ill-defined reason. So you've got to figure that out. And then, you know, I think also just visibility to programs and how they actually happen in large companies is a big issue. Like if you're in my chair, like our teams are not very big typically, right? Mm-hmm. So like if you have a, a marketing director and, you know, on the Excel template, you know, they're paid perfectly competitively, they're doing well, they're performing fine. But what you don't know is, you know, they're three time zones away and they're on this project. You, you don't even know who this person is, you know, personally. And like maybe the role has changed a lot, the scope's a lot bigger, but you have no way of knowing that. So we have to kind of, we don't have that connective tissue in place always to evaluate when people's roles get larger or smaller or uh, they're not compensated, you know, according to things that don't show up on the Excel template, right? So because of all of that fluidity and the inability to just switch things on and off, like pay just gets messy real quick. And sometimes you find that it's not somebody's actively, you know, twirling that mustache thing. Let's, let's keep people poor today. It's we just haven't looked at this particular thing in a while or something has changed that we don't know. That makes sense. I am curious you decided to come out with this book in the midst of a space that is, you know, kind of stuck in some ways. And that isn't often the topic of conversation. We talk about reinventing organizations. Why write the book now? What struck you? What happened? What was the kind of moment of inspiration that led to this? Yeah. So, you know, books have long lead times, right? And I know know you're you're, you're well of that. So like if I had like a six month, if it was backed up six more months, I would have included more things about some of the really current challenges around remote work. And I'm sure we're going to get all into that and, you know, maybe a little bit more worker power than we've seen in the past, like all of those kinds of things. But broadly, you know, the the book really started out as just me trying to get back into my hobbies. Like personally, I was I was really, really burned out professionally. You know, I had done some writing in the past for some magazines like my claim to fame. I did a one McSweeney's thing and that made me feel really nice. great. About, that's you know, so some writing, nice. like, right? Like, Get it. That's like, you know, that gave me some cred, right? And so I was burned out. And, you know, one of my the leaders of the company I was at at the time just kind of gave me this look when he found out that I used to write that just like basically cut me in half personally. It's like, you know, what, what are you doing with your life? Why aren't you, why aren't you making time for your hobbies anymore? Because it's clearly affecting you, right? Mm. And so I just started writing again, didn't matter what, what I was writing, but I took that old, uh, 
advice around, you know, write what you know. And so I eventually found this prize called the Brackenbauer Prize, which is put on by McKinsey and Financial Times and um, ended up getting shortlisted for that prize. And then it took a pretty traditional path from there, you know, signed with an agent, went through the proposal process, all of that fun stuff. But, you know, around pay, like this is one of those things that I think is the biggest area of opportunity for improving our work lives, but the place that we're least equipped to talk about, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's I think a lot of like the organizational trauma that exists in our day to day comes from pay, but we just don't really know. It, you know, it's one of those things that you just assume everyone's out to get you at all times or you're underpaid or... And it's super taboo to talk about. Yeah, absolutely it is. And, you know, that's one of those things that, you know, we might not get to a place where we're all wearing, you know, name tags with our number on it, right? But like, we have to just get a lot more willing and open with talking about this. And for those of you who might work in companies where, you know, you're you're encouraged to not talk about this stuff, like just know like uh, legally, like there's nothing to prevent <laughs> you from talking about pay. Like that's this weird myth that won't go away. Like it is a deeply protected right for you to do. So, you know, we just have to get better at this stuff. And it, when you do this work for a long time, what you realize is that like, Pay is answering the same five questions over and over again, just with a different spin attached to it. And I think <laughs> I think ultimately people just kind of want to know, hey, am, am I paid? Yeah, you know, am I okay? Basically, am mm-hmm. I paid competitively? Was the process fair? You know, if I went and did this thing, what would I make? And what can I expect here? And th- does it all does it all kind of fit together? That leads me to a slightly tangential place, which is. Those five questions do very much land. I have worked in and around compensation in the past in other roles. And one thing that that brings up is those questions are very personal questions. They're very, they're very mm-hmm. centered on the individual and their own experience and the value that they add and et cetera, et cetera. And then there's like this externality. And I've had the experience both as the receiver of pay and also as someone communicating messages around pay that is the individual experience does not line up with what's happening externally. And what I mean by that is someone being like, well, that seems unfair or that seems too low or that doesn't seem to recognize all I've done. And I'm sitting Mm. there going like, you're getting paid 50% over market compared to your peers. So like, I understand you're bummed. And also like this was actually meant to be an amazing story from a market data perspective. So could you just talk a little bit like from where, because I feel like David, you sort of sit in the middle of that, like understanding the individual motivation, but looking really critical at the external landscape. How do you think about joining those perspectives? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, and I think when people come to you with those pay questions, I think they're asking not just about pay, but also just about questions about belonging and do you, you, know, do you me? value me? Yeah. Do you love Right, right, right. Like, yeah. that's am all I valuable? it is. Yeah. Am yeah. I valued? Yeah. Am, am I wasting my time here? You know, am I, do I have a, a pathway here or not? You know, like those, I, I always kind of laugh because you know the people who get most upset are people who make the most money and always you know it's like it's like it's like i you know i would love a fraction of what you're getting please enjoy your your boat you know like it's (laughs) it's it's always like those are the biggest hissy fits you get to deal with you know but i think that this market data thing is, is such an interesting one because you know if you're right because if you're in my chair like you have to just keep a straight face sometimes because like there is literally no way for somebody who does not do this work for a living to go get an accurate number. Mm. And I think, and I, th- and I think this is like in a point port of contention because like when, when people say, well, you know, I look this up online and like, I think it might be helpful for me just to explain where market data comes from in our world yeah. and why that's different from, you know, what you Google. Right. Mm-hmm. So like when, when you're, when you're Googling this stuff, if you're going to, you know, Glassdoor, Payscale, LinkedIn, or whatever, just know that your formal compensation team is just not using that data. And, and I don't mean that in the sense that these places are bad. Like I, I am extremely thankful they exist. And I do believe they're going to get tighter over time. You know, I think that the belief there is that with enough data, with enough calibration, they can kind of approximate what companies are doing and what shows up on the formal salary surveys. But like, the problem with them is that they're a lot like, for the same reasons why Yelp reviews aren't always super great. You right. know, it's there's a self-selection. Like, right, right. You either had a great experience or a terrible experience and also maybe it's when you go to that restaurant maybe your salmon wasn't underdone maybe you're just one of those people who doesn't understand what a properly cooked salmon looks like Mm -hmm. you know so or if like you think you're a data reporting analyst but you call yourself a data scientist like those are very fundamentally different things you know so like the difference between some of these self-reported pay websites and the stuff that companies actually look at is one is complete data so if you look at the third-party surveys that most companies use like Every spring, every company submits their data into one of these handful of vendors, right? And so what they're saying is, yes, these are all of our 
accounting professionals at a management level three or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like these are, com- this is complete data and it's been normalized by a third party. So we're like the outliers have been removed and all of that fun stuff like that. That kind of gets you, I guess what we'd call the real data in, in the marketplace versus what you can just find online. And that, that's before you layer in things like, you know, proper leveling standards. Like if I am at a small company and I call myself a director, that's going to mean a fundamentally different thing than if I'm at a Fortune 500 and in the director spot, you know? So people like, there's so many potential points of confusion there where, you know, like the stuff you Google is just not going to align with the stuff that, you know, your, your company is using. Yeah, it's kind of exciting to see there's this next gen of startups in the comp space like Pave, who just raised a bunch of money or Carta has launched a product in this space, at least for startups where they're now just plugging directly into HRIS systems mm-hmm. and they're slurping all the data and they're doing a leveling calibration as part of that slurp. And so it is, I think there's promise that it'll get a lot better than what we've seen from some of the more social aggregators in the next few years. So at least, you know, maybe that'll move up market over time. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, you know, I, I was on a call with a, another one called Pequity mm-hmm. uh, a few weeks ago. And like, there's a lot of really smart people tackling this. The, the Pequity one, I think, let me say, like, I, I'm not a customer of this product. I'm not like dipping in my <laughs> in the pot here, but like, or I'm not an investor or anything. But like, uh, the person who runs that is ex-Google comp person. And I think, mm. I, th- I think one of the important distinctions when you're evaluating these companies is are the technologists running it or are the compensation people running it? Because right. you, have to, you have to be able to have enough battle scores of how this stuff actually works to be able to interpret not just the data, but like what is what was the kind of meta narrative that sits behind all of it and right. to be able to, you know, establish it at the right standards. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I will say also in the traditional space, there's just an enormous amount of consolidation, which as a practitioner, frankly, kind of bums me out because I don't, I don't like that there's only, you know, a couple of places where you can go get kind of the official data. Uh-huh. And, and I would like there for a bit, a bit more competition in this space, but it, it is a time of rapid change for sure. And, and I'm excited to see what comes. Speaking of that decentralization, you write in the book that pay design at the world's largest companies is done by a small group of people who are well connected to each other and who use the same data sets that you were just talking about. And you say that you can think of us as the world's least interesting Illuminati, which I loved. <laughs> you said the field is not well known and that becomes an advantage that we have over you. So why isn't it well known and and who or what has contributed to this design over time? Yeah, and let me let me just say on the Illuminati front, you know, we don't have handshakes or anything, <laughs> but we do, we, 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 we do go to the, the same conferences. Like this is a very small world. We all kind of know each other. We, we you know, rotate in and out of the same companies, but it's not such that like Coca-Cola calls up Pepsi and say, what are you paying your marketing leaders? You know, like that stuff can't happen. Like there are Department of Justice guidelines where you need you know, enough data and third parties to referee that kind of stuff. So I I don't, I don't mean to infer that this is all collusive. What I do think would be beneficial is that if some of this stuff were a bit more public, like you would, you know, we'd have to be able to compete for talent in ways that are, it can hold us accountable in ways Mm -hmm. that I think are important. But I think the reason that it's not well known, I think there's three big reasons for that. So the first one is we sit in HR, but HR broadly avoids doing this work. I think uh, traditional HR is kind of comfortable having comp as a tool in their toolkit. But if you're a top HR leader, it's pretty rare for you to rotate through the compensation world in any meaningful amount of time and then make your way to chief HR officer, right? So like, it's always this kind of tangential part of the organization. And, you know, within that, it, you know, I think we could talk a lot about like, you know, what's broken with HR and, a, you know, that, that's a long conversation, but it's, uh, HR has kind of set up this framework where they call themselves generalists or business partners and embed themselves in the business. But it baffles me that, you know, you have this mentality around, well, we're not getting to comp, which is like the, the, you know, the most important part of our business, like the biggest line item that we actually control on our budget. Right. They, you right. know, like you, you, like you, what you hear a lot is, eh, I'm not a math person. I don't get into this. It's like, you're kind of missing the point here. You know, like this, this is how people experience, you know, the trade-off for their work. If you're not paying them fairly, you're not paying them competitively, like none of your other programs are going to land well. So I would encourage if you do HR for a living to really step into the comp space. But, you know, another reason is I think uh, pay, like we said, is just super, super personal. And we keep it hidden as if it's a shameful secret. So there should be no surprise is that the people who do this work are kept as kind of a back of house private team also, right? Because we're not, we're not out in center, out in front. And some of us may actually like that because we're like just <laughs> Excel nerds and we don't want to get held to account, which 
maybe leads to the third reason, which is just power. And like, I'll be blunt, maybe a bit cynical here. Like, it's just easier for us to operate if we're not held, if we're not held accountable, right? Mm-hmm. It's one of those, if the stuff that we do is public, and again, I don't think there are evil villains out there, but everyone likes to have their own mistakes covered up right. and, we, and we make mistakes and it's just easier for us to operate, you know, from, you know, through people as opposed to being on stage ourselves. What do you think are some of the trade-offs between having a more centralized approach to to pay scales and comp in an organization versus something more decentralized where it's kind of more managed by the teams at the edge using maybe a central data set. Have you have you had that debate or or thought through some of those trade-offs? I would maybe break those lines out between, you know, within country and across countries, you know. Sure. So I think in a big global organizations, it, there's only so much you can do centrally. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I have a general sense of, you know, what the market rates are in Vietnam, but I can't say I'm in Ho Chi Minh City right now knowing what's going on on the ground. Right. So like, yep. you know, at, at certain levels, like you do need really tight partnerships at the local managers, local business leaders, you know, that kind of stuff that to supplement what you're seeing in the market data, because the market data is not always great, especially in some of those contexts. You know, I I think there's a lot of interesting thought you could put around having managers be able to kind of set pay rates at the local level. I think one of the trade-offs that you would make is like, if you're doing that, can you run proper like equal pay, pay equity kinds of analysis? Because you have to make sure people are operating under some of the same sets of guidelines and standards. So I I think that that becomes a super complex question because pay pay capability is actually just quite low. And that's one of the things I want to try and accomplish with this book is to help managers be able to identify when they don't think that people are paid fairly or appropriately Mm -hmm. or under market. Uh, So you would hate to be in a situation where you've got talented people that you keep losing because one manager is like, a tight ass on their budget and won't spend any a, anything. And maybe you've even incentivized them to do that, right? I and mean, there's a whole right. world around incentives that are, you know, I'm sure we can get into. And, but, you know, I, I think sometimes our incentive plans that we design actually work against our intended purposes, you know, and there's just so many like complex trade-offs. I think there are, it, as long as you're clear around, these are the things that we want to control centrally. These are the things that we give you some discretion to do locally. And maybe that's just spot bonuses, recognition payments, identifying people for promotions, that kind of thing. And maybe you keep some of the more structural stuff a bit more centralized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just sort of tying the last two questions together, where my mind is going is this. You have, because you read Brave New Work, you have seen the operating system canvas and you know that one field on there is the compensation field. And then there are 11 other fields. And a lot of times what we see is an unwillingness or an inability to even consider making changes to compensation, any aspect of compensation. And then what I hear often, particularly from HR leaders, but certainly from people managers as well, is like, we're somehow going to overcome that with the other fields of the canvas. So like, we're going to communicate differently and we're going to (laughs) recognize differently and we're going to blah, 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 blah. But I think the point that you're making, the point you made earlier that really landed with me is like, you can't just do that and expect that people are going to ignore this very concrete, very tangible signal and, and just like sort of forget about that part because you told them it's not that meaningful or you did the best you could or whatever. And so I, I guess what all of that is sort of leading me to is like, where do you begin? Because there's something between don't touch that, mm-hmm. it's carved in a stone tablet, and completely blow it up in any organization that's bigger than 50 people. There's got to be a move in between those things. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And and I would say, you know, to your point, there really has not been that much experimentation in this because uh-huh. there, there's this book that came out a few years ago called, I think it's called Widgets. And w- one of the things that I remember from that book is, you know, pay isn't the only thing, but, you know, if it becomes the only thing, then it's the only thing. And I'm probably, you know, I'm paraphrasing, I don't remember the exact quote, but it's like, we talk a lot about conversation philosophies. And I think this is like grandiose way, like we're not Plato or Foucault or anything, you know, but also Plato did have very strong opinions around executive pay ratios, which is fascinating. Uh, he said it should be five to one, but digress on that. But um, so, so it's like, if there is one, if there is one kind of philosophical belief that I think is true across our um, industry is that like the, the kind of the Maslow's hierarchy, mm-hmm. right? Where, yeah. you know, but we, we would pay as kind of that credibility baseline, 
layer, you know, in the same place you put like food and water and shelter. If you don't have that stuff, like the upper parts of the pyramid around self-actualization, recognition, whatever, none of that's going to land because people are like, you know, I make 10 bucks an hour. I can't put my electricity bill through. You know, it's yeah. like you've got to get some of that stuff right before you, before any of that other stuff will resonate. You know, and, and I struggle with this. You know, I worked in the franchise restaurant world for a while. So my job was to basically travel around the world and help franchise leaders to design some of these programs. And what you constantly hear is, you know, it's not about pay. It's about, you know, some of these more self-actualization levers. Like, no, no, no. These, these people literally, like, they can't put the building blocks of life together. Like, you have to touch pay, yeah. right? Yeah. You know? And so, and, and that's true, you know, at the low end of the pay scale, but it's also true on a relative basis to the high end mm-hmm. of the pay scale or that around, do I make as much as the person next to me doing the same amount of work, right? So it's, it, it's unfortunate uh, that so many companies are unwilling to touch pay, but I think that speaks to how inertia-driven this is and how personal and complex and like how hot stove of an issue, you know, all of this is, but I I do think we would do very well to have some experimentation in in this world. That's what I'm hoping people will come out of this book with. I mean, there is a name for an organization that pays below a living wage, but uses motivational techniques to keep you engaged and and excited about being part of it. And that is a cult. (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah, that's, you know, I can't say that's the language that our industry uses, but I don't disagree with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The the HR strategy is cool. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna go take a lap and think about that one. I think, but yeah, yeah. yeah but like, so and this is one of those things where you have to think about how difficult it is to get massive wage increases through yes. you know, large organizations, right? right? Because like the book starts with, you know, kind of my realization at the, around the fight for 15 movement in the sense that, you know, I was at the Starbucks headquarters at that time. I was, mm-hmm. you know, over overseeing retail pay for all the baristas in the U.S. And, you know, I walked outside one day and I saw this, this protest and it was like five or 15. This is 2014. And it just floored me. I'm like, holy smokes, like this, this isn't anywhere near, like where are they getting this number from, right? So I'm going mm-hmm. to all of this like super rigorous, this is, you know, 60, 70% above what the market data shows. And, and let me let me be honest, like you can look at this data right now and I, and I, won't, I won't give away the, the consulting firm that I was speaking with, but the number of big retailers that expect to be $15 an hour this year of big, major, highly sophisticated retailers is in the teens on a percentage basis. Mm. So we are um, not making fast progress on this stuff. So it's, but if you think about like just practically, how do you get big wages through big wage increases to organizations? It gets very tough, right? Because like there's always this like decrescendo of who matters in the organization. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like clearly the executives get basically whatever they want to, you know, because they are, you know, uh, for lots of reasons, but I think some hand, of on the, should, hand on the yeah. steering wheel. Yeah. Oh, that, you know, proximity to power, I think matters a lot and pay too, you know, like if, if you're having to sit across the desk from the head of HR, like that's a harder conversation for that person to say no to than somebody who was holed up in a, uh, in a distribution center in Memphis or something. Right. But at the same time, there's also a parallel organization that happens all the way through, you know, your finance, your operations, your strategy teams, you know, that is, basically creates a number of hurdles for you to go all the way through. So if you think about like the four walls of a, of a retail store and you say, well, we need to increase these wages from, you know, 12 bucks to 14 bucks an hour uh-huh. on a starting basis, like you're going to have to go, you know, convince that, that the equivalent person in the finance team who's just overseeing that retail store, that area of retail stores, that it's a good idea, who's then going to have to go and then up and then up and then up. And like the, the reality is like, there is way less wiggle room on a margin basis the lower you go in the organization. But as you click up, you start to find, oh, well, we can just make this trade off. Uh-huh. You know, it's like, yeah. well, if, if we need to invest whatever it is, a million dollars in transforming our company to, you know, being digital first, then it's yeah, like, well, we have other we... coffers we can pull that exactly, from. Exactly. But it's way harder down below, even if like you look at your total payroll budget and say, we could do immense work, immense good work for, you know, the the lowest segment of our population for not that much money on a relative percentage of our payroll, right? You know, might, you might have whatever it is. And if you own, you know, restaurants or retail stores, whatever it might be, you know, 80% of your people, 70% of your people sitting in those occupations, but it might, it might be, you know, a quarter of your payroll Uh or something, right? Right. So you, you, you know, so like people don't tend to look at it from this relative basis. They just look at the, you know, the sticker shock number of, and, and, and there's not even necessarily a strategic reason why they'd want to compete on wages either, because theoretically, somebody else could copy it. And then you're kind of right back where you started from, which is kind of this three-legged race problem that I talk about in, in the book. Yeah, it does seem, though, that folks don't tend to think systemically about this, and they almost come from a place of scarcity. It, you know, it, it feels to me that the predominant attitude is, 
what what do we have to cut or keep low to maintain to sort of keep treading water at the level of performance we want instead of thinking about what combination of compensation strategy and the rest of the operating system would blow the doors off the top of this place and that's where i look at places that have already moved to 15 an hour or that have done that a long time ago whether that be a costco or an in and out or a chick-fil-a and you're like you know when the whole system is humming the 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 per hourly rate of the member almost doesn't matter like the because they're doing so much better on the top line yeah have, have either of you read the good job strategy by zenapton no no okay. Okay, when we get done, go purchase that book immediately. Okay. So, I, like, and so she blurred my book. And After she, they buy your book, right? Oh, of, of course, of course. But, you know, I will say my book wouldn't exist without her book. So, you know, I'm equally happy. I just want this stuff to change, right? Yeah. So her and her team at the Good Jobs Institute at MIT have done basically all of the research around what you're saying. If you can put all of these pieces together, and you have to make hard choices on a really integrated basis. So I talk sure. about, I talk about, like, the cost control things come, like, the ability to invest in your employees comes from, you know, like three C's basically. Like there's there's the cost control side of it, but there's also character and coordination. You know, so coordination happens when you are working with the op- right operations, finance, HR teams, strategy teams, whatever it may be to say, these are the things we're going to invest in. These are the things we cannot invest in. We can't do everything. So we're going to pick two or three things that are super relevant to our industry or our business and the uniqueness that we can provide and go really heavy on those things. So, you know, you see some retailers say, we're going to go big on management development. So we're going to have super highly paid managers. Right. Or, you know, if if it's like the Starbucks model, you know, we want people to be prepared for whatever that next step looks like in their life. So we're going to cover health insurance and education and just be, you know, kind of so-so on base pay. Right. At least when I was there, I don't know what's changed. But and then the character side of this, too, like one of the things that you see every single time when a company comes out with big wage investments at the low side of the scale is the CEO comes out. It's not the head of HR. It's not the head of HR. It's the CEO saying we're doing this for, you know, values based driven reasons. And one of the things that you have to do is you have to base basically take all of the market data that my field looks at and just ignore it. Because again, like th- th- this stuff is like, it's a nice input into the overall ecosystem. But if you're just relying on it, you're not going to be at 15, assuming that's your goal um, anytime soon, right? Because like, it's, it's just not the rate. And so the one of the things that I that I, I, I kind of challenge people on a lot is like, if you, if you see a pay rate in the newspaper, just know that like, it's there because it's newsworthy, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. if, if everybody was paying 15 bucks an hour, it wouldn't be newsworthy, it would not have generated a headline, which means it's not the market rate, yeah. right? So like, 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 there's something just inherent about what you see in the headlines. And, and I'm happy that a lot of this press has come out. But you know, you can go Target or Best Buy or Starbucks or, you know, Bezos and Amazon, like, they've all come out with huge statements around this stuff. Now, have they all have we gone far enough? Have we fixed it? You know, no, absolutely not. But there is a pretty well-worn path on how you get this stuff done. One thing that I want to dig into a bit, particularly around things like, you know, Fight for 15, is there is so much discussion all the time about executive pay and billionaires and the top of the house and why they are overvalued and overcompensated. And I think probably we could talk about that. And I imagine we wouldn't diverge hugely in our opinions about that. Would I fail to understand when I'm in conversations with a variety of Fortune 500 companies who have people who are making contact with their customers be paid a wage that does not allow them to live effectively is like, what is the philosophy behind that? Because, (laughs) you know, like the person who is standing at the register at Walmart does not give a shit what the CMO is making (laughs) and is not, is not like, that is not part of the customer's lived experience. And yet the, the restaurant worker, the cashier, the driver, that it's like, that is your customer's experience. And so it's wild to me that in so many of these conversations, leadership teams are very quickly like, no, we can't touch that. It's too many people. It's too big of an expense. It's too big of a blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, how, how do you discount that so quickly when they are <laughs> the people who are actually in touch with your market? Yeah, I don't get it either. But, you know, I, I think the maybe the framework around this is probably best akin to don't ask, don't tell. You know, it's one of those things <laughs> oh, that God. like, again, we're kind of hidden away, but CEOs like, and I talk about this in the book and even top HR leaders, I think it's incredibly rare for them to know what does the lowest person in your company make right now? Mm. Like that, that is, that is just not typically on the radar. Like that stuff's been kind of outsourced multi rungs down in the organization. And, you know, one of my recommendations is that if you are in a leadership position, you need to know. Yeah. You should know that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because like that, 
that fixes everything, you know, and I don't, I don't go too deep into like the legislative solutions, but you know, one of the ideas I kick out in the book is if you're a big public company, if you can buy stock in the company, like you have to disclose like the, what the top five people in the company Mm -hmm. make. Right. And so because of that, you know, there's a process to evaluate that every day. You know, if we, if we had bottom five pay, Mm. we would, we would also have to put a process in place to evaluate that. I love that. that. and so, and now granted, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have bottom five pay, like, but you're going to have a whole lot of people at that particular pay rate. So like, show me, you know, those bottom five pay rates and let's make it contextually relevant also. Like it's, so it's not like, like when you see CEO pay ratios, but you find out the median employees, like, you know, factory worker in Indonesia sure. and nobody has like a heuristic for what does that actually mean? Like make it tied to the headquarters location. So I can say, okay, in the U S how are we doing? If the company's in the U S but like, also, you know, why don't we just go ahead and put demographic information on that just to see what we find, mm-hmm. you know, I, because I, I bet you're not going to find information you're happy to see. Maybe right. Look, right. So this is the kind of stuff where it just does not get visibility. But, you know, I have through multiple companies, you know, I've seen the good, the bad and the ugly on this stuff. And like what I find is just that, you know, there's just a lack of it, it, again, it's not overt. Let's keep people down is holy crap, I did not know, mm. you know, and like, you, you, you could make a character judgment on that, right? Like, sure, you, you could absolutely do that. There's this really illuminating um, clip, I don't know, you, you two have probably seen this from a few years ago, it's it's Katie Porter and Jamie Dimon kind of going at it. Did, did you see Mm-mm. that clip on YouTube? So, um, you know, Jamie Dimon is CEO of JP Morgan mm-hmm. Chase, and you know, Katie Porter, Congresswoman from Southern California, and she's got like her classic whiteboard out, and she's talking oh, about yeah. one, of her, one of her constituents, and she's going through this person's budget. And so he's asking Jamie Dimon, you know, so how is this person who is at this point a couple rungs up the ladder and like saying she lives incredibly modestly, has a has a child, you know, super old car, like doesn't take vacations, doesn't ever eat at restaurants, any of that stuff. And yet her budget is negative, even without taking any sort of luxury for herself at all. And it's not that Jamie Dimon doesn't understand finance, you know, like he's one of the you know, great, <laughs> great, great wizards of the thing, you know, and it's like he just he just doesn't know. And so the the response onto this, you can see he kind of shuffles a little bit, and then there's some you know feedback that comes back you know later you know in a, a more a more calibrated corporate <laughs> you know approach to it where they've clearly checked in with you know my equivalent at at their company and they're like you know what we actually pay pretty well for for the area and you know what they're right about that like if if this mm. person is making seventeen or twenty bucks an hour like that's pretty good mm-hmm. in an area, you know, with health insurance in an area where a lot of people are making, you know, 12, 13, no health insurance, no any sort of security whatsoever. So like they can kind of get away with that relative argument. But like what I want people to understand, especially in my field, that that being market relevant is not the same thing as being people relevant. And so I, I think there are like there are some companies that are doing really fascinating stuff on this. So PayPal is one. PayPal has moved to this approach as they're looking at net disposable income for people. And interesting. Uh, and I'm yeah. yeah. So I'm trying to get my, my head around how, how you would calculate something like this. But basically, they'd say you know, it's a basket of goods. Our goal over time is to make sure everybody has at least 20% uh, net disposable income. And so when they ran the numbers the first and, and if I get this wrong, somebody from PayPal, please let me know. But when I think when they ran the numbers the first time, they realized they, they you know weren't there. You know, they were 5% or whatever. And so their goal over a number of years is to adjust their pay scales in such a way that they can make sure everybody's got that 20% margin so they can, if they get a flat tire, they need to go to the doctor, you know, like they're, they don't carry that economic anxiety into work, which right. clearly affects their, their work contribution, right? So, and their health. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's, have you all seen like Dan Price is a guy who's yeah. doing Yeah, this. I was yeah, just thinking of Dan yeah, when you were talking yeah. about this. Like he posts a lot about this stuff, you know, oh, and yeah. then, so, but like what he did, uh, he, you know, increased all of his He's got this uh, credit card payment company called Gravity Payments in Seattle, and he, he put a book out and talks about, you know, I didn't know how little my um, lowest paid person was making. You know, I didn't know she had a second job at McDonald's mm. that she was studying for while working for me. And that, I guess, completely transformed his mindset around this. So over a couple of years, he increased everybody's pay to $70,000 a year, you know, which was enough to provide them a decent life with some margin in case things happened. At the end of the book, he starts talking about all of this, like, like really ridiculous stuff that happened on, you know, uh, to benefit his employees. They're like, Hey, we paid off our debt. We took vacations. The rate of babies that people have, like exactly. Yeah. 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 We can afford healthier food just overall. Like, you know, we get, because we're paid enough to survive enough to thrive. Like we can actually be experienced our full humanity, you know? And it's like, these systems do not have to exist the way they do. We just choose for them to exist this way. And so this is, this is, and I'm sure like I'm speaking preaching to the choir here, but like, this is 
one of the things I just I, I really want to get you know out through this book. Yes, this listenership is the gospel choir of what you're saying. <laughs> okay, good. All right. So we've been talking a lot about the more traditional ways of thinking and paying and the the aspects of compensation that are stuck or broken. And and all of us, I think, see this as a space that needs more experimentation and we would like to see more new ideas being tested. But I would like to run by you, David, things that we are seeing in the world and have tried ourselves and just get your take on them. So the first one is transparent pay. So all we mean by that is what people are making is visible to the rest of the organization. Maybe you could also comment on visible to the rest of the world because there are companies where that is also the move. Yeah, so transparent pay is something where there's clearly like a lot of legislative action happening right now. And uh-huh. the and then I think broader in the marketplace, we're seeing, you know, enough pressure there for companies to start making some some real moves on this finally. You know, and I think so no doubt like the world of the future of pay is absolutely going to be more transparent. What I will say is that transparency for pay exists on a spectrum. Not all companies are going to want to you know go the route of say buffer, which is kind of the, the classic comp example where you kind of know sure. everybody's pay. The trade-off there is that when companies that go that route, they typically will also introduce a very formulaic based pay system. So like at that point, if it's formulaic based, you don't, it doesn't really matter if it's fully transparent because you don't <laughs> right. really need to look because you, you kind of know where everybody's at. I have not seen companies go to hundred on this in the absence of formulaic based pay. I think the research on this is that people are actually pretty split on this stuff. Mm. Like w- when you make pay more transparent, basically if you're below the line you thought you should be at, you're, you're very unhappy. If you're above it, you were happy. And you know, if you think about organizations as more or less a normal distribution curve, are you going to willfully upset half your people? You know, I, th- I think it's the, the trade-off uh, question that people make around transparency. But no doubt, things around you know the process that goes into uh, pay, how things were decided, where the data comes from, what pay could look like at that next uh, level, what your own pay range is. All of that stuff will absolutely, you know, be part of the future of pay. But I think it's in, it, like transparency is in service of a bigger goal around fairness and people understanding their employment context. And you know, I, I think uh, when you see pay that is transparent, it doesn't doesn't fully solve all of, all of your pay problems either. Like you still have stuff you have to sort through. Like one of the um, kind of interesting, you know, points on this, like Norway has fully transparent pay in the sense that anybody can look up anybody else's tax records. Mm -hmm. They've had this for, you know, 100 plus years. Norway still has a wage gap of, you know, 7% or so, right? So like transparency isn't the only thing going on with pay. Can it help? And should we get closer to it? Absolutely. Uh, But I don't think you're going to see companies go fully there because it, one, a lot of employees aren't going to be happy with it, actually. And two, it's not going to solve all of the problems. It's going to create different types of problems. My favorite thing about the response to why not to go transparent about everyone being or half the people being unhappy is, well, they're unhappy for a reason. And either that reason is they need to be educated about their market value or they're unhappy because you need to be educated about their market value. So it is a it's kind of a funny thing to just point to unhappiness as a reason not to play. But I like your point that it's it's table stakes to what needs to happen, not the only thing that needs to happen. So. Along that line, what do you think about fixed pay by level? So the trade-off there is always going to be, you know, at least perceptions of, you know, management and leaders thinking, you know, can I really differentiate based on performance? And like, there's this mantra in in the compensation world where everything is meant to be paid for performance. And I, you know, I, I have a lot of thoughts on this. I'm not sure we do a great job at actually evaluating and calibrating performance. I think organizations are just more complex now than making widgets. So like, it's very hard to figure out who's actually contributing the most value and who's not. But I, I think broadly, fixed pay is something that can absolutely work in environments where there's like either a lot of turnover or a lot of volume of people doing very similar work. But it's harder as you go further up into the the scale where there's theoretically at least more differentiation, you know, among talent. I would say fixed pay without uh, an effective performance management system or other levers that you can pull, I think is probably not going to be well received by a lot of companies. They still want to have that ability to go get the that 10x engineer or whatever that they need to, you know, unload the you know, Donald Duck swimming pool too, you know? <laughs> and so it's, yeah, again, all, everything about pay is, and it's, it depends and there are trade-offs attached to it. One thing we're hearing a lot about and reading a lot about right now because pandemic is location-based pay, including different compensation for remote workers versus in-person workers. What's your take on that? Mm. Yeah. So I, I think, uh, 
what people probably have with this audience, I'm sure has in mind is, you know, some of the big tech companies coming out and saying, if you relocate, we will cut your pay. For sake of an interesting conversation, let me take the pro of that argument. Okay. I'm not saying I'm not saying it's the it's the right argument, but let me just kind of give you some insight into how people in my chair think versus kind of the average, uh, you know, person who's, who's, you know, just in the organization. And so like, if you if you're in this environment, you say, well, if I can, you know, if I can contribute the same amount of value from San Francisco as I can, you know, Minnesota, mm-hmm. then why cut my pay? That doesn't make any sense. I'm contributing the same value, right? And like, I'm always curious, like, where does that, where does that line of thinking stop? Like, does it also apply to like Minnesota? Can you also go to Manila? And do you also realize right. how, how different pay is, you know, across geographies? And, and maybe, maybe, you know, you're a proponent of globally set pay rates. I'll say if you are there, you're going to be waiting a while because I don't think any company is, <laughs> is doing that. You know, I think, you know, it's part of the reason they have offices overseas anyway is because it's cheaper and you can take advantage of different time zones and that kind of thing. But like with everything about pay, like think about it in terms of just anger triage, I guess, you know, and, and it's the sense that like, no matter what you do, there's this ambient temperature of people that are going to be upset about you because they don't, they, they don't feel that they're paid enough, you know, and so most companies, they have a limited pool of funds that they have to pull from, you know, the Google's Facebook's like, it, clearly, they're not doing this for cost reasons, they're doing it for, you know, administrative clarity mm-hmm. reasons. And when you get to, you know, if 100 people or so you can navigate it, and it's fine. When you get to 100,000 people, it's incredibly complex, because you can come up with every scenario possible that would make people upset. So like one of the things that you're seeing with these companies is they, and I don't mean to call it specifics, but like if, if they are um, saying we're going to cut your pay, but also we only expect 15 to 20% of our people to be fully remote. We expect everybody to, most people to still come back to our offices in San Francisco or New York or Seattle or whatever it may be. Some of these high costs of labor markets, they basically have to control for you know, the mass of people that can walk by their desk and saying, well, you didn't allow me to go, you know, move back to the Midwest with my family and get a big house at the pool. But you're paying that person um, the same amount as me, and they're netting so much more than I am, mm-hmm. right? And that's the bulk of the people compared to the minute amount of people who are going remote. So like, you can you can design this in every possible toggle. But I think, like, one of the one of the things that I think these companies have done well, again, you don't have to, you know, agree or disagree with the approach they've taken. But like, is they've at least said, here's what we're going to do. And they've been transparent about how they're trying to navigate this. My my take on some of these stories that they're trying, I think they're getting a bit too granular and I'd be mm. hesitant to cut anybody's anybody's current pay. I think that's always a real problem. <laughs> like yeah. like maybe you say on a go forward basis, if you choose to go remote, you know, this is what the environment looks like for you. But, you know, I think I think what companies are kind of implicitly signaling is uh, they still view the corporate campus as essential to their business, right? Like they don't they don't want or expect everybody to be uh, relocating everywhere they want. It's to. essential and to something for them. It, it it Yeah. Yeah. And we can you know, I think we can debate whether or not that's whether that's, you know, for valid reasons or not in the future. You know, maybe maybe it's your Apple and you've just spent whatever billion dollars putting a spaceship size <laughs> campus. And you know what? Maybe you've also promised X number of jobs to get some tax credits in that location. Therefore, you have to staff people there, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like, like there, there's all sorts of stuff that you know, is probably going on behind the scenes there. Or maybe it's just kind of a mentality of, we truly believe people work better when they're in a physical space together, right? You know, and for some companies that might be true, some that might not, you know, but it's uh, a lot of it is just the argument around, yeah, how do I make less people mad at me today? <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Ambient anger rationale. It's a, it's a lens into the decision-making that I don't think we often take as a position on this I show. I was going to say, I feel like that's really a, a thread throughout this entire episode. It's like, how do we make the fewest people mad? And, and maybe one more thing on this. So, so like, if you're in my chair, you're optimizing for, as, as you all say, operating system, right? If you're in, you know, the employee chair, you're oper- optimizing for outcome for yourself, mm. which is as, as much as possible. So we kind of have, we have competing goals in the sense that they're not necessarily contradictory. It's just that we're looking at different things. If I say yes to this person, does that mean the decision-making criteria that I use to say yes to this person, does that allow me to say yes or no to that other person, mm-hmm. right? So like, and that's where you get into all these, well, kind of favoritism games or whatever. So like, it's better to have kind of a rules-based ecosystem to say this is, and, and if you choose to make lifestyle choices to go from this location to that location, you know, you have to, at some point, at some scale, you have to kind of handle the consequences, good and bad for those things. Yeah, 100%. It's all trade-offs. I think I just wish that bigger systems did more first principles thinking and convicted decision-making around this rather than trying to compromise and thread the needle on kind of making things the least offensive to anyone. Because what you end up with then is average, of course. And I think our contention on the show is that most of the firms that have had like a 
back to office mandate are just going to bleed talent over the next decade. And the talent that leaves is going to be typically the best. So it, it should be, I don't know, it seems like a, a brain drain opportunity, which hopefully we'll all get a chance to take advantage of. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious how it shakes out. One of the things that I think will happen is, um, and we could stay away from the wonkiness side of this, but like, if you're in my chair, you don't you don't look at cost of living data at all when you set pay, which I think is a, a maybe something people don't realize, but you do mm-hmm. look at something called cost of labor, mm-hmm. which is when you start thinking about, okay, so here's what software engineers in Boston make purely as a function of the number of opportunities and jobs that are in Boston. Like yeah. the, the standard, the standard mentality is let me, let me take the national survey data, slap a percentage on it for San Francisco or Boston or Seattle or LA or whatever. If, if that distribution doesn't exist anymore because people are more spread out, that number actually just kind of goes away. Right. So like what, what you might see is some just more nationalization of pay rates over time. So if enough people do leave these cities and they don't, they don't change, you know, their pay rates on the way down, you probably will see raise, you know, pay actually fall in some of these big cities for elite jobs. Yeah. But I, I don't think we are at critical mass for that. I'm curious to see how it shakes out. But again, most jobs can't be done remote, like, you know, like they are at dentist offices or, you know, you know, care organizations or whatever, right? Like, I mean, are they kind of, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of jobs you have to be at the table to do. And that, and I think that's totally fine. I think our like party line on location-based pay on this show recently has been let's focus at a country level because the, the reality is not everyone is mobile across country lines in terms of visas and, and citizenship and all that. So that's not really a realistic thing to say we have a global rate because you don't have a global fluid workforce. But within the country, I kind of come down on it. I was tweeting about this the other day. Wherever you charge the same amount of money, you should probably pay the same amount of money. <laughs> that, yeah, that's, that's interesting for sure. You know, I think um, one of, there's a lesson here that we can learn from executive pay. When you get to the executive ranks, you don't see any of this geographic differential anymore because, right, they, right, because right. They, view, they view themselves as, you know, national talent, right? Right, we're beyond, beyond space and time. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so the the second coming, you know, everybody is better than than, than the next one, right? But yeah, so there, there's a lot of lessons I think we can learn from the executive pay environment that then apply to everybody else that continue, you know, some of the wage growth opportunity for everybody. So it's going to be an interesting couple of years here as we come out of this COVID event. And what do you think about self-set pay? This is something we've been doing for a couple of years at the Ready. So we're a fairly small organization, but I don't think we would go back from this. So I'm curious, what do you think about that? I'm super interested and want to see all of your documentation on it. It's what, it's what, I, it's what I, I, I will say, I have not seen any other company do that. And I'm just so fascinated by the idea. You know, I think, you know, as with any system, it's hard to scale when it gets larger. And I'm curious how it's working for you, but I can't say I can um, necessarily comment on, you know, whether it could or could not work for larger organizations. I, I think the the trade-off is, you know, do we have enough clarity around what everybody's doing and what they're contributing? You know, like if you, if you don't start with some of those things, you can't say, you know, like maybe you're in a highly matrix organization. You can't say, well, that person's contributing X and here's uh-huh. you know, w- what they've done. I think they're going to have a hard time justifying their pay when three other people say that that's what they do, uh-huh. you know? So it's, if you don't get that whole operating system set, probably as a foundation self-set pay is not necessarily going to be seen as credible. It's going to be seen more as horse trading to an extent. Interesting. I, I will, <laughs> I would love to walk you through what we've tried in here. I would, I honestly, yeah, yeah. I, I, I want to see in, it. Inspo for Morningstar on that one, but yeah. And the last one I wanted to ask about was just team versus individual incentives. I've been doing some work over the last couple of weeks that has drawn me to a bunch of case studies from companies like Pratt who are very focused on team rewards and not trying to reduce down to what one person did and just pay on that. What do you think about that? Yeah. Oh gosh. Rich area here. You know, I think the worst fights I've seen about pay ever are always about who gets credit for what yeah, in the incentive plan. Totally. Uh-huh. And it's like, it's like, why did you even do that? So like there are a couple, couple of companies, <laughs> that, like there are a few companies that have just outright gotten rid of their plans. Like, you know, Netflix, Amazon, you know, they've gotten rid of their cash incentive plans because like, I think one, there's tax reasons, but also they said, well, why, like, why would we do this? We've got stock that's growing, you know, at infinite routes, you know, and I think that there's this perception around you need, if you don't pay people a little bit more, they're not, they're, they're holding back some element of their best work unless you pay right. them that care to go get it, which I think people underappreciate that it really, if you have an effective performance management system in place, like 
all of your pay is at risk. You know, like if you're not doing a good job, it's not the bonus line. Like they just don't get to work there anymore, you know? So like they don't necessarily need that carrot. But around individual versus, you know, team-based stuff, like, again, we have a, I think people in my field really overestimate their ability to gauge individual performance. Yes. Like there is, if you think about pay as this, or incentive plans is like this, again, you know, kind of normal distribution curve, like there's a left end of the tail where there's like these actively harmful programs, like these things that even if unintentional, things like at Wells Fargo, right? Where, you know, right. you have some sure. really challenging, like fraud-based stuff or, you know, you're Facebook and you're taking, you know, ads and rubles for an American election. That, that kind of stuff's not great, you know, for your sales incentive plan. Or you've got the far right end of the tail. Maybe you, maybe you do have some line of sight around like, you know, very particular sales jobs where it's a one-to-one relationship and not a team. I think those things are very small. I think there's this broad swath in the middle where my field likes to say, well, if we set this up in the right ways, it's going to drive the right behaviors to, you know, increase our business on these, uh, on these relative metrics. The truth is we have no clue. Is it the is it the the person's behavior that's changed? Is it that you've got a new product line? Did you get a little bit lucky? Oh As, yeah, this you know, is all like, apocryphal nonsense. Oh it, yeah, like it it just doesn't it just doesn't really make sense. You know, I think so. It was kind of blanking on his name. I think it's David Epstein. It's got this book called Range. Came out a couple of years yeah. ago. Yeah, and so and yeah, so he talks about you know the future of, of work being more fluid, team based. You know, a lot of this stuff, and I think broadly that is where this is all going. You know, like I can say some of the bigger projects that I've launched uh, recently, you know, in, in my world, it, like I didn't do that on my own. That's a, a whole crew to pull off, right? So like it doesn't make sense for most jobs, I don't think, and nor is it practical or realistic to say, well, you know, here is your individual metric and, you know, relative to what somebody else got. Because again, this is where you start introducing a lot of potential biases around, did this person really do it on their own? Or are they a little bit closer to me? So I saw the result? Or do I like them more? Is there an unconscious bias there? Like you start introducing all of these unforced errors that I think are just problematic. Yeah, not to mention the identities that tend to advocate for themselves very vocally around credit taking, <laughs> yeah. and uh-huh. reward uh-huh. gathering. Absolutely. And what do you know? Did you see, did you find a gender uh, gap in your bonus pool? Like in the, <laughs> like, like in, in the UK, for example, you have to report on this. It's one of the only countries where you have to. And, you know, I think some of the data coming out of the UK wage gap on bonus in particular is, is illuminating for the, for the direction that you're headed. So David, I kind of want to wrap it up on the topic of the last 18 months. We've, we've come into a pandemic that has really shaken up a lot of things about the workforce and how we get paid, including who has jobs and where the jobs are done from and has actually severely impacted the workforce itself. I have been to many, many, many retail establishments and restaurants and hotels in the last couple months and found that they are understaffed and would literally take anyone who could put fog on a mirror at any hourly rate. What are you sensing and seeing about where we're at, what the pandemic has done to this area of work? And what do you expect to see over the next year as we try to put the economy back together, if you will, on the front lines? Yeah, you know, I think we've gone, unfortunately, I get pretty spun up on this topic. I think we've gone very quickly from these workers are essential to, you know, these workers are freeloaders, and they just need to get back Mm. to work. You know, like, this stuff drives me nuts. Like, there, there is a, a part of this that is just saying, well, you know what, it's not that people are you know, being greedy or whatever, but for the first time, they've got, you know, some ability to navigate their employment experience and say no, right? right. So it's when, when you hear labor shortage, you know, I'm of the camp that you should just replace that word labor with wage shortage. Mm. Okay. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's if you ignore certain parts of the employment experience for decades, like this is the inevitable result of it. You know, I think like if if people are saying, you know, they're not like they're just rightly asking to be treated under the same decision-making rubric as everybody else in the Uh sense that, well, okay, I understand it's a restaurant. I can't work from home. That doesn't make any sense, but give me a proper sick time, you know, that I can take care of people. I'm going through a pandemic too. And by the way, I'm going through it in a much more dangerous environment than people who are, you know, sitting at their computer inside their house, you know? So um, by the way, and maybe in a lot of these industries, they don't have health insurance, you know, they don't get enough hours to put food on the table. Like, so I think, you know, there's something about just of the moment that we have to say, we have like artificially created an economy where these, where a lot of jobs are paid too low, not because of necessarily market conditions, but because there hasn't been enough structural competitions where employees have to compete or employers have to compete for employees yeah. in the same way that they have to compete for customers. And I think there naturally just has to be kind of lurched forward with you know the employment experiences of this group. And of, of all companies, like honestly, Walmart has kind of led the way on this, right? Mm. You know, not maybe on wages or anything, but like they've actively said uh, in some respect, we're going 
going to be kind of the anti-gig economy mm. company where we're going to specifically go into more full-time work, career development. We're going to help you with your career. We're going to be that company that closes the opportunity gap for everybody. And, and I would like to see a lot more of that. Like that, that that's just, uh, I, again, I get spun up on this. I can go for hours, about it, but, 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 I, I, but I think it's, this was overdue. It was coming. And, and I hope we come out of this in a way that's a lot more thoughtful. Well, a great reckoning seems like a pretty good place to draw things to a close on this topic. So David, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work and your book? So the easiest is just at davidbuckmasterbooks.com. That's where I keep all my contact information, you know, interviews, podcasts, that kind of thing. And, you know, I'm on some social media, LinkedIn, Instagram are probably the two that I use the most, but I'm also on Twitter if you're all more comfortable there. Amazing. David, thank you so much for coming and talking all things fair pay with us today. Thanks for having me. And to our listeners, if you love what you're hearing, please do review us, follow us, forward us to somebody who needs it. A quick tip of the hat, as always, to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good. Uh, Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. Get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something.